Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Your host is Michelle Beck. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, thrivers, their friends and family by providing resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here is your host, Michelle Beck. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Thanks for being here today. My name is Michelle Beck. I'm a two-time nine-year survivor of breast cancer, and I am also the program's assistant at Breast Friends in addition to hosting this amazing show, which is so fun. So when I have time, also, I write at a blog called I Never Liked Pink, and that's where you can also find all of my musings on social media. But today, I've got a super interesting guest here, a executive director of the Athena Breast Health Network. Her name is Allison Stover Fiscalini. She's an MPH, and I need to know what that means when I give you your turn, Allison, because I have no idea, and I should have looked it up. Um, Athena, and she it's a uh, California University of California worldwide collaboration, accelerating the integration of clinical care and research. And you can find out more information at the athenacarenetwork.org. She's super interested and her expertise in her career has been really looking at large research programs focusing on cancer prevention and long-term follow-up in addition to health policy and in informatics. We're gonna have to talk about that word too. I think I'm going to learn a lot of words today. Um, right now she's leading Athena's largest initiative, the wisdom study. And we're going to talk about that today, which is a randomized controlled trial of hundred thousand women testing more of a risk-based approach to breast cancer screening and when that should all be happening. So Allison, thank you so much for being here today and really excited to talk about it. So tell us a little bit about yourself outside of, outside of the professional. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Michelle. I'm excited to be here today. Um, so let's see. So outside of professional, I am uh, a mom and, and wife living in Northern California. I'm actually originally from the Pacific Northwest, from the Seattle area, mm-hmm. um, and really love spending time outside, love spending time with my family, um, and uh, have been at UCSF and with the program, the Athena program you mentioned, for about the last 12 years or so. So, um, yeah, we have our two young boys keep us busy and, and always a balance to have work and, and play and family and kids, but it's a fun one and um, it's been fun to see um, them grow. I, I definitely have that, have that balance of trying to, to make it all work. And I have an 11 year old son, four older stepkids, two dogs, biz, busy, busy life. And in addition to the work that I do, which it's working for a nonprofit. It's if you do something like this, it's filling your heart. And cause I, I love what I do and I hope that we can do this study justice today. So what made you decide to get, Oh, first of all, what's MPH. Oh yes. Uh, master of public health. Yes, as so as soon as I asked that, that, I was like, Oh, I bet that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a lot of what I was trained in was um, in the social and behavioral sciences, epidemiology, statistics, that type of thing. Um, and that was done up at the University of Washington. Go Huskies. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. I went to UC Santa Barbara. So I was like, oh, UC, UC system. It's a good system. I did. I did have a quality education. There was a lot of alcohol involved, but I made it through. Uh, <laughs> what made you decide to get into this field? Yeah. You know, I've always really been interested in science and, and math and testing new ideas. Um, when I was in high school, I actually volunteered at a local hospital and participated in their child life um, program, child life specialist program, which was for 
um, pediatric cancer patients, and many of them were sort of inpatient in the hospital. So I got to go in and I got to bring in activities and games and be that nail, you know, painting nails or just getting to know the young children who are going through this horrific time of their lives and, and their families and really kind of touched by that whole experience of how can we try and prevent this? How can we do better? How can we provide the care that these families need? Um, you know, seeing a, a young child go through uh, cancer and cancer treatment is mm. devastating. And, mm-hmm. and that was really motivating to me to, to get into the healthcare field. hundred percent. So obviously you started at a very young age. So you had a, you had a specific career track and you're like, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. You know, I, I, again, I think I, I thought I was going to go into to practicing medicine and being a doctor or a nurse mm-hmm. and, and really kind of got into the research arena when I was in college. Um, I participated in some research studies and and helped to lead those research studies around um, the psychological benefits of exercise. And we brought in virtual reality, which this was back in the early 2000s. So Mm -hmm. much, much earlier than any Oculus or anything like that that came into play, but just really understanding the the interplay between health and wellness and, and psychological well-being as well. So that's really kind of what drove me towards a research side rather than practicing medicine side. And you mentioned all those things. They're all different spokes on the health wheel, the nutrition, the exercise, the, the mental focus, the physicality. They're all things that we really need to worry about as, as myself as a cancer survivor, but of those of people out there who, who want to be as healthy as they can and hopefully not get cancer you know, and yes, there are some things that we don't have control over, but I think there are some things that we do. And if we don't have researchers like you telling us in the different things that, you know, the, the doctors are great, but we definitely need all aspects of the, the practice to get us to the best place that we can be. Did you by any chance have a history of cancer in your family or saw it when you were young? Yeah. You know, my, my grandma was diagnosed with um, endometrial cancer while I was in college and um, I was away out of state at college at the time. So I, I did what I could remotely. And that was, I created a binder for her with pictures all over the outside and, you know, areas for her to put in all of the notes and questions and things. You know, I, I wasn't able to accompany her to too many treatments, but, you know, just really trying to give her the resources and the support that she needed from afar. Um, that was really, you know, another motivation to going into cancer was uh, both my grandmother and then also some some further uh, relatives further out um, having colon cancer and and really just trying to understand um, the underpinnings of of the disease and diseases and and how we can potentially do better at um, screening and prevention and and also treatment. Um, one of the things that I noticed with my grandma and that with some of my early work too is that. You can, you can save someone from, from dying of cancer, but what we often don't look at are those long-term consequences of treatment. Um, you mentioned earlier chemo brain or, or you know, something like that, but there are lots of, of these unintended consequences of, of treatment that often go by the wayside. And um, I think another piece of what I'm really passionate about is making sure that we understand those long-term effects. We get those patient-reported outcomes, quality of life measures, really that is just as important as some of the, the clinical measures of how effective a treatment is. It's, it's just as important to measure that too. Oh, 100%. I've been through it twice. Both times the cancer was 
successfully eradicated from my body through surgery. I didn't have chemo either time. I did have radiation the first time around, but navigating survivorship is such a challenge. I, the, my body is so different. My, my brain is different. The, the lack of estrogen I have has really taken its toll on my entire body. I have side effects from my from my aromatase inhibitors that I take that I'm, I deal with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I'm at five years, but they want me to do it for 10. And it's the medical community is great at doing what they are supposed to do, but it's something that is really, it's a hot button for me to really talk about how to get through survivorship in the best way. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, just really understanding all of the the long-term effects, physical, psychological, you know, emotional, um, you know, things in terms of just having a steady job or being able to be employed and some of those factors getting in the way of that, you know, insurance and it's, it's complicated. And, um, I know it's often once treatment is over, you kind of feel abandoned. So, um, I know survivorship and those resources are particularly important and communities like this and helping, survivors connect with one another can be extremely valuable in, in making sure people have that community of, of survivors to support one another. Yeah, that is hundred percent what I have found at Breast Friends. I didn't have it during my treatment time. I actually, later on, I was trying to get back into somewhat of normalcy and I went in to volunteer because I'm like, I've got time. I had been a stay-at-home mom. My son was in school at that point. I'm like, I need to do something. But then I realized they had even later, I needed that support. And I walked in the door almost five years ago and I never left. And now I get to do this and spread information and, and you know, hopefully hope for people who are out there who are really struggling. So we're going to get to the wisdom study in just a minute, but for you being in this field for so long, what is your, your hope that the research and the work you do can do in the cancer world? Yeah. You know, the goal is that no one should ever have to experience cancer. I think that's a, it's a, a very big vision to have that happen, but you know, in the meantime, we can try and understand a bit better sort of the the biology of cancer and what we're looking at is breast cancer, you know, how does it, how can you treat and tailor treatment to different types of breast cancer? Um, and, and we can learn from that to then see who's at risk for these different types of breast cancer. Should we be screening people differently? Is there more that we can do to integrate prevention um, with screening so that people don't have to encounter a diagnosis and go through treatment? Um, so I think that the largest and biggest grand vision is that we try and prevent more women from getting breast cancer and, and really trying to understand the underpinnings of the disease so that we can tailor screening and tailor prevention um, to get to that goal. Totally understand, understand and appreciate that. And so that is the perfect segue to talk about the wisdom study, which is why we're here today. So um, most of my listeners are survivors, but I would has I would say that they're not medical professionals. So give us the the layman's version of what you're doing with the wisdom study. Sure. So um, I think many of the listeners will probably know that screening guidelines for breast cancer are all over the place. Um, Some may be recommended to start screening at 40 and go every year. Some may be told come at 50. The guidelines are all over the place and and providers get conflicting information and women get conflicting information. Um, A lot of what we know about and a lot of the guidelines are based on data that's from 30 years ago. 
we know now um, that breast cancer is not one disease, that there are many different risk factors. And so our goal is to really take all of that knowledge into consideration and test a new approach to breast cancer screening that is a personalized approach. Um, we are comparing that to the one-size-fits-all model that everyone should be screened every year starting at 40. We know that we can do better than that. We've got much better knowledge of what breast cancer is. Um, and so we're trying to provide the data to support updated guidelines and updated guidance to help to um, mitigate some of this confusion that's out there. So our, our overarching goal is really to see if this risk-based or personalized approach is as safe and effective as screening every woman the same every year starting at 40. Right, And that really makes no sense because we're all so different. There are some of us myself included, that has a family history. My grandmother passed from metastatic breast cancer. She went, you know, had one breast removed and then, and then 10 years later, another breast removed and then was back in her chest. And at the time I didn't know anything about it. I was, when she was first diagnosed, I was, I don't know, 15, I think, and, you know, self-absorbed. And then really it was her last time around that I started getting into, okay, this is, this is what it looks like. And I am, I'm BRCA negative. And I don't have, I don't have any of the other genetic risk factors, you know, I've, I've tested all of the things, but I really do think there's something else out there that later on, we're going to find out in addition to the things we're putting in our body and our body type. And for me, like I was a mother late in life. I didn't breastfeed before I was 40, which there's all, there's so much information out there, but it really it needs to be more specific as to what we're doing because the, and now they're saying get tested at 45. Like, well, people are getting diagnosed in their twenties and thirties and it's later and it's more aggressive because they're too quote unquote young for breast cancer. It's ridiculous. Right. Exactly. And that's what we're trying to do. So the study is open to women 40 and older across the U S wherever they live, wherever they're seen um, can join the study because it's a virtual study. But really, that 40-year-old um, eligibility was a starting point for us. It's what we had to start with because that's what the guidelines say. But our goal really is to try and provide some, some knowledge and evidence to support screening some women earlier than 40. Mm -hmm. Not everyone. It doesn't make sense to screen everyone, like you said, and that everyone has that risk. But for those that do have risk, and in particular have risk for those aggressive cancers that usually show up at younger ages, we want to be able to intervene and provide preventive options prior to that diagnosis happening. So all of this knowledge that we're generating, all of the scientific evidence that we're generating in this study, the whole goal is to then translate that to provide um, guidelines for women younger than 40 as well. Yeah, it's and it's like you said, it's the the more aggressive ones are being di being diagnosed younger, especially the triple negative. It's it's taken a toll on our community personally so much in the last two years that it, it just needs more research and more information. So what you're doing is amazing, and I know that the the main doctor who leads this, Dr. Laura Esserman, is she's the lead physician on the study. Can you tell us a little bit about her and what her role is? Sure. Yeah. So um, Laura is a, a breast surgeon um, and she has been at UCSF for the last, I'd say, 25 years or so. Um, if anyone knows Laura, you know she is a force to be reckoned with and doesn't take no or that's too hard for any answer. So she is constantly challenging what we know and, and what we think we know about breast cancer and asking questions and, and pushing back on 
um, you know, the current status quo. So she is a thousand percent dedicated to everything that she does, be it her family or her work or her singing. She actually loves to put on performances and sing in her spare time. Um, she's a, a leader across the country in breast cancer research and treatment, um, runs many other large treatment trials, but this wisdom study and the Athena network is really the, the, um, the platform to try and generate knowledge and evidence in breast cancer screening and prevention, where we can take all of our learnings from um, the diagnosed patients to see how we can prevent that and others in the future. So yeah, she's, um, she's a force to be reckoned with and um, a, a very strong and vocal leader within the breast cancer community. Well, and that's super important because as a breast surgeon, she's obviously seen it from varying levels from, you know, women who are diagnosed in their twenties to probably diagnosed in their eighties and the different options that are out there and trying to just make it a better situation for everyone involved, you know, yeah, women, exactly. w- women as, as well as men, because they're, I, I know I don't, men are not part of your study at this point, correct? Um, correct. Yes. It's, if you're, if you can have a mammogram, if you have breast tissue, then you're eligible for the study. That's the most important thing. Okay. Well then, th- yeah. then they would be. So yeah, yeah. we've all, mm-hmm. well, uh, supposedly I don't have any more breast tissue, so we'll have to get into that. Who is eligible later on, but we do need to take a short break. So listeners, please stay with us. There's so much more to talk about. If you would like to know what breast friends can do for you, please go to breastfriends.org and check out patient programs to see what we can do and stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Thank you for listening today. Breast friends need your support. We rely on donations to continue our mission that no woman goes through cancer alone and to keep the show going. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can text BF Radio to 41444 or visit us at breastfriends.org to donate. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon or follow us on Instagram at Breast Friends PDX. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Michelle Beck, and my guest is Allison Stover-Fiscalini, and we are talking about the Wisdom Study, a risk-based cancer assessment research project, and we just started to get into it a little bit. So, Allison, what made you want to be a part of the study? How did you first get involved? Um, You know, I was working at UCSF on another breast cancer study for DCIS, and um, it was an active surveillance trial. Um, and really kind of thinking about how can we approach screening and prevention differently, um, bringing in um, what we know about risk and the biology of breast cancer. Um, The group that is running the WISDOM study is an excellent group of collaborators, scientists, researchers, patient advocates, um, just a really strong group of people. So it was an exciting opportunity to get involved and to really think about the, the potential of making a difference for 
you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of lives, um, all women who are being screened for breast cancer, helping to, to clarify uh, what we know about how best to approach screening. Perfect. And who is eligible? Who qualifies for the study? We briefly touched on that before break, but I'd like to dig into it a little bit more. Yeah. So because this is a breast cancer screening study, we are enrolling um, all women across the United States who are between the ages of 40 and 74 who do not have a history of breast cancer or ductal carcinoma in situ or DCIS. Um, so a, a non-breast cancer population um, of women. Um, and again, across the country, it doesn't matter where you get your mammograms or where you receive your care or what insurance you have. Um, it's a virtual study. And so anyone across the country can join. And what does it entail for these, the people who do join? Yeah, so it's, it's all online. Um, there are some components that we ask you to take information back to your doctor the next time you meet. But essentially, what the experience is, is you'll go to our website. It explains um, the study, and the website is www.thewisdomstudy.org. Um, you read about the study. You fill out a quick uh, registration form, um, and you create an account to be part of the study, and it checks your eligibility. Um, you're then shown a couple of options of how to participate. Um, so it is what we call a preference tolerant randomized control trial, which <laughs> is, sounds much more, much more confusing than what it really is. Essentially what it is, is, you know, randomized trials are the gold standard that are out there, but with collaboration or in collaboration with our patient advocates, we know that not everyone is willing to be randomized. They're not comfortable with being randomized. And we really wanted to make sure that this study could be open to everyone. So the preference tolerant piece comes in that we, we ask women, if you're comfortable to be randomized, please be randomized, elect that way to participate. But if you're not, you can actually choose your study arm and that gives us a way for everyone to be included. So if you have a strong preference, you want to keep getting your annual mammograms every year, or you have a strong preference, I really want the personalized risk assessment. You can actually choose that. Um, so once you elect one of those two, um, you complete some questionnaires on the, on the website, on your portal. Um, and we will ask you for where you received your last mammogram. And we will uh, make sure that we get that record because breast density is one of those risk factors that we take into account when we assess risk. Um, so the, the two study groups that you either choose to be in or you're randomized to be in are um, the annual screening group, which is our standard of care. Everyone gets assigned annual screening every year starting at 40 or the personalized arm. And that's where we recommend a screening frequency based on your individual risk. And um, one big component of that individual risk is we actually offer genetic testing for everyone in that group. Um, which is a, a bit novel in, in how we're approaching because normally in clinical care, only women who have a strong family history of breast cancer are offered genetic testing, but we are offering it to everyone in that group. So there's a lot of opportunity for us to learn about genetic risk, irrespective of family history. Um, so once we assess risk, we assign a screening frequency um, or we recommend a screening frequency. Um, and then every year we ask you to come back and update your information. Has anything changed about your family history? Have you had any other biopsies? Um, hopefully not a diagnosis, but if you've had a diagnosis, let us know. And every year we reassess risk 
and give a new updated screening plan. I love that. I wish I could be a part of it, but that ship has sailed for me. Uh, I do. I do love the genetic testing portion because when I was diagnosed my first time, uh, almost 10 years ago, uh, there was a lot of money to pay for that genetic testing. And yes, it was because I had a diagnosis, but it was still something that had to go through and process. And now when I had my second diagnosis, it was, it was different and I'd already had the testing done, but it would have been much cheaper. And now there are places literally you can do the swab and mail it in and do, you know, some sort of the testing. So I love that that part of it is expanding, but really also that there are the, the different groups like, and the, the person, I, I, I apologize. I can't remember the term you use for the more personalized section, but I, for, for people who are high risk and really want that extra care, I, I definitely appreciate that. And I will be, after we do this, I'll, I'll take a clip and put it out there and get it to all of my 50 year old friends that I have. Cause we just all turned 50 this past year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, going back to the genetics piece of it, you know, our understanding of the, of genetics has changed over time. So, you know, what we're testing for in the wisdom study are nine breast cancer specific genes, um, BRCA one and two are part of that panel of nine genes. Right. And those used um, to be the also- only ones that anybody ever talked exactly. about, but there's so many now the, the P10 is, is really, you know, popular now. And there's another one I just read about the other day. I think it was a rad one or something like that. And I need to keep a notebook with me at all times. Cause I can't remember anything. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's constantly changing and, and which is great. We're learning more and we're able to refine our assessments. Um, and another way that we're doing that, that's a bit unique for wisdom is that we're looking at not just the nine genes, but some of the smaller changes to your DNA um, in what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And there are, I know about SNPs. Know, okay, great. So so we're looking at a panel of SNPs um, and expanding to a larger panel and a low pass of the whole genome soon. But what that allows us to do is take all of those smaller changes and aggregate them into what we call a polygenic risk score, where that helps us to see, um, is your polygenic risk score high or low? Is it, um, is it helping us to understand that you're at increased risk of, of developing breast cancer, or maybe you don't have that genetic risk outside of the, the nine genes. Um, so that's a novel piece of what we're doing within the wisdom study as well, is doing that polygenic risk assessment. And for some women, if they have no genetic mutation, they may still have a high polygenic risk, and we would recommend more frequent screening based on that polygenic risk. I actually, I did, I did my, my, not the, I don't know what it's called, not the SNP test, but I took my ancestry DNA swab information and I gave it to my nutritionist and she plugged it into her 23 and me magical box. And, um, we did, we went over all of the things and I have the, I have the SNP in my MTHFR gene. So, you know, the, the wonderful, excuse my French, the motherfucker gene, which can cause all kinds of problems. And literally like, yes, I looked at all the things that can cause I'm like, check, check, check check. So biology is weird. <laughs> yeah, it is. And you know, it's interesting, all of these different companies, as you said, genetic testing was so expensive and it has reduced in price. It's much more accessible. Um, I would say though, that not all at-home genetic tests are created equal. They don't all tell you the same thing. Um, there are limitations in what they can tell you. So, you know, for some of those at-home tests, if you don't find a genetic mutation, but perhaps they're not looking at the full spectrum of that one mutation, BRCA1 and 2 is a good example, it may have a false sense of reassurance. Um, you know, so I would just uh, 
advise people that if you are pursuing an at-home genetic test, that you kind of understand the limitations and what it is and isn't testing for. Definitely. And if you have questions, talk to your doctor, talk to your, your naturopath, find out their best recommendations for you. Always. Exactly. Now, do you feel the, the people who are participating in the study that they're more informed about breast cancer or the possibilities or, or less? I, I imagine my guess would be more because they're, they want to be actively participate to know what's potentially going to happen in their bodies. Yeah, we do see that the women coming into our study tend to have more familial risk than the general population. There's more of a vested interest because you have a family history. Um, that said, we are, we are really hoping to make sure to enroll women who represent the general population, be that in underlying family risk, genetic risk, um, across different ge 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 geographical areas, excuse me, uh, rural, urban, metropolitan areas, uh, race, ethnicity, you know, different um, socioeconomic statuses. So really trying to make sure that our population represents the population at large, and, and that includes underlying a family risk um, as well. Um, in terms of, of understanding their risk, that's one of our main goals of the study is to make sure we are providing information, you know, we are assessing someone's individual risk, everything that we assess, we give back to the participants in the study. Um, we are making sure that you um, have that information, you can share it with your doctor, you can use it to make informed decisions with your doctor, and that you um, can understand what puts you at higher risk or lower risk, what raises your risk, what reduce, what lowers your risk, what you can do to help uh, lower your risk as well. Um, so it's, you know, part of our goal is to really make sure that women are empowered and they have the information they need to make informed decisions about their care. That is something that I am also super passionate about is being your own advocate too, in terms of anything that's going on in your body. If you don't advocate for yourself, no one else will. And that's, that's super important. Now, how long has the study been around? So we started enrolling back in late 2016. So it's been over five years now. So we have some participants who have been in the study for, for five plus years. Others are still joining. And um, our overall goal, as you mentioned in the very beginning, is 100,000 women, which is a hugely aspirational goal. Uh, we currently have about 45,000 women who have consented to be in the study. Um, so we are hoping to try and double that and try and double it, you know, within the next year. Mm -hmm. um, so we are, again, you know, trying to make sure that every woman is made aware of the study, that they're offered the opportunity to participate, and that, you know, we've tried to reduce as many barriers to clinical trial participation as we can. Many of those things like travel and childcare and parking costs and all of that um, aren't aren't problems here because it's a virtual study. Um, though we do know that you have to have access to a smartphone or a computer or, sure. or some way to participate electronically. So it's not a, you know, it's not perfect design, but we have tried to reduce as many of those barriers as we can, making sure that everyone is, is um, given the opportunity to participate. And um, I'm sure since it's been going on since 2016, there have been some patients who have had potentially life-changing outcomes or quote-unquote success stories from being a participant in the study? Yeah, we've had, we've had many different stories and it's always so nice to hear 
Um, you know, one of the stories is uh, a woman who's now become one of our wisdom ambassadors. Um, and she discovered that she was at high risk. She, you know, didn't think she was and she was at high risk. We recommended that she get an MRI in addition to her mammogram. Um, her mammogram was clear. She went to get an MRI and they noticed a spot um, from her MRI. So she went in and it was cancer. Um, she luckily was able to um, get it removed and get treatment without there being too many bad outcomes. But, um, you know, there also are women who discovered that they had a genetic mutation and they had no family history. They had, they were surprised that there was a genetic mutation there. And actually, I think that our current statistic is about 65% of women who test positive in the study have no first degree family um, relative who has had breast wow. cancer. So I think, you know, one of, as I mentioned, the, the approach of doing population based genetic testing, we should be able to learn, you know, is family history a good qualifier for recommending genetic testing for women? Probably not. There's probably other things we should be considering to say who should get genetic testing or not, because there are many people who have no family history who um, may have a mutation. Right. And if you aren't participating in the study like this or being proactive with trying to get a expensive genetic test or just something done to see, you're not going to know. And then if, you know, many women too, they don't get their mammograms on time or they could be diagnosed younger. And so it's just, we need to figure out a better way. And obviously that's what you are doing now. I'm what you do. Obviously you're, you're recommending this to, to colleagues and friends and, you know, fellow physicians out there. What, what feedback have you gotten from them, the medical community overall? Yeah. You know, everyone's pretty excited and, and interested in, in seeing what the outcomes are of this study. We are too. And that's why we're trying to enroll as many women as possible so we can get to that answer faster um, you know, it's interesting too, to just hear and, and see how, um, polarizing some of the recommendations and, and information can be that, that women get and that doctors um, provide as well. So that's been sort of an, an aha for us is just people have very strongly held beliefs about, um, breast cancer screening. Some people will never want to move away from screening every year, starting at 40. It's, you know, for some, it may be not enough. Um, there are others who say, I don't want to get a mammogram at all. You know, I'm afraid of them. I have a fear of mammograms. I have a fear of knowing if I have genetic risk or that I will get cancer. And it may be that those people are the ones who really need to know and need to go in. Whereas the people going in every year, some of them may not need to go in every single year. So it's, uh, people have very strongly held beliefs. And that's one of the things that we've been working with our patient advocates who are involved in the study on is you know, how do we try and make sure that everyone um, feels comfortable being part of it and that the information that we're providing is, is clear and conveyed in a way that people can understand it and also have informed discussions with their doctors. Now, as part of the study, you have mentioned that it's virtual. I'm assuming that it's no cost, obviously, to participants as well. Correct. And so they're doing it virtual. Are you having is it, I'm sure there's a lot of, there's questionnaires to fill out in the beginning. And then are they having follow-up, follow-up visits, conversations, meetings? How, how does the actual study participation work? Yeah. So once you fill out your initial surveys, if you're in the personalized arm, you, you complete your saliva kit at home in the mail for the genetic assessment. Um, If you're at high risk, 
uh, and or you have a genetic mutation, we have a team of breast health specialists and genetic counselors who will give um, your results to you over the phone through a consultation, um, provide you with resources for and, and information for your doctor to uh, what may need to come next. Um, every year we reassess everyone's risk as it does change to give updated screening plans. Um, and, and that's based on the information that people provide via their annual questionnaires. Um, we do offer lots of opportunities to engage with the study team. We have um, open houses that are hosted by our clinical research coordinators where you can log in, ask questions. Um, we have some of our clinicians who provide information on various topics each, each month that you can listen into. We have uh, community forums that we've recently started in the last six months or so, um, really inviting the community to be part of the discussion around breast cancer and breast cancer screening. Um, you know, even though we all work in the breast cancer field, we are, you know, we know only so much as we know. Our, our communities and our patients also educate us on what's important, what should we be paying attention to. So it's really a community discussion and dialogue so that we can learn from one another and, and share our wisdom. And I, I just a random question. Are most of the par, um, not participants, um, administrators, clinicians, et cetera, are they mostly women? Um, mostly, but I would say not everyone. Um, you know, our, some of our geneticists and, um, and primary care physicians who are involved are, are not all women, but I would say the majority, the majority are. Um, and it's a, it's a great, a great team, a great collaborative team, all very passionate people. And our patient advocates in particular and our community leadership board in particular are some of the strongest members and most influential members of the team. Their voices are, are so important and at the core of everything that we do. And obviously something like this takes a lot of funding. Do you have companies behind you or is it the university? How is that working? So we do have some um, federal funding. We have an NCI grant, National Cancer Institute. Um, we also have a grant from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, PCORI. Um, we have some foundation funds that have come in. I mean, it's, 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 it is um, uh, something that we've tried to build a, a large um, amount of funds for because it does take so much effort and energy with so many people in the study. Um, so it's been a collaborative uh, effort across many different funding sources. Well, obviously it's very needed. So this is very important. We do have more to talk about. So we do need to take another break though. So listeners stay with us, please. If you'd ever like to make a donation to ensure that people do not go through cancer alone, you can do that on our website or by texting BF radio to 41444. If you would like to be a guest or submit your warrior story to me, you can email me at Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. And hey, while we're at a break, take a minute and rate and review the show. I would love that. So uh, stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to continue our mission that no woman goes through cancer alone and to keep the show going. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can text BF Radio to 41444 or visit us at breastfriends.org to donate. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon or follow us on Instagram at Breast Friends PDX. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. 
You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Michelle Beck, and my guest is Allison Stover Fiscalini. And we're talking about the Wisdom Study, which is a Athena Network, Athena Care Network study, talking about trying to find a really a better way to do risk assessment screening for breast cancer. So, Allison, program's been around for almost six years. You you've you're about ha- almost halfway to your goal of enrolling patients because you want to hit a hundred thousand, but have you guys been able to secure any media coverage for this? Because it seems like something that it literally should be in everyone's feed at all times because it's so important. Yeah. You know, media has been a really important part of our strategy to um, make sure every woman is aware of the study. We had the privilege of having a feature in time magazine in the fall of 2021 that featured interviews with some of our study participants, some of our study partners and collaborators that really helped to tell the story of why we're doing the wisdom study and also what some of the participant experiences have been. So um, it was a really great way to sort of summarize and put um, a video together or a series of videos together to explain what we're doing and, and try and get more people um, aware of what we're doing and, and share it with their communities as well. That is super yeah. important. And I'm, I'm also going to send you around to my podcast friends. So you can, you can be on some other places too, who have different audiences, because the, the more we share it's, that's how everything gets better. And as I say, at the end of every show, we rise by lifting each other and it's, it's not a competition out here in the breast cancer community. It's all about collaboration and what can we all do for each other? So it's super important to get people to sign up. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, our, our breast cancer survivor colleagues and partners are often the best ones to help us build awareness about this study. Although you can't participate, you can be those voices and those trusted community partners who really are trying to encourage your loved ones friends and family and community members to participate in something like this so that hopefully those people don't have to go through a cancer diagnosis. Um, So really, you know, everyone's voice is important and everyone's experience um, can be included in something like this and really make a change in how we approach breast cancer screening and prevention. Now, going forward, the, our goal obviously is that no one will have to have cancer, but we're not going to eradicate that tomorrow. How do you feel that this helps the women who are currently participating in these studies, whether in, in either group? Yeah. You know, um, understanding your risk, um, is something we assess risk in both groups in the study. So understanding your risk is always something that's valuable, you know, knowing what risk factors you should be looking for or looking at, Um, just having an awareness about your, your body and your breast health and any changes to your breast health, you know, participating in something like this gives you a reason to, to pay attention and to be aware, um, and, and really being able again, to learn about what to be looking out for and, and helping to have these conversations with your friends and family members, you know, talking about breast cancer is not fun. Talking about your your breasts and a, a body part that's usually covered and in the past has been sort of taboo to talk about it 
you know, we need to normalize these conversations and make sure people feel comfortable and, and feel like they can share um, their experiences and also share if they feel like there's an issue, you know, getting, getting help from a physician, from a care provider, um, if you feel that something is not right is, is super important. You know, the, ma- the majority of cancers are detected by women themselves. And so having that awareness and normalizing this conversation around breast health is, is really important. Definitely. I, I now consider myself an oversharer. I talk about anything and everything much to my husband's dismay, but I, it's, I think it's so important just to get the information out there. And because yes, I went through breast cancer and it sucked, but now I'm in, it has brought me new, wonderful things into my life, but what do I wish I didn't have it? Of course. So if any, if I can prevent or, you know, help one woman from not getting this by sharing information, that's why we're here. And I, I know that's why you're doing the study as well. Now you had mentioned talking about race earlier, and we know in the breast cancer community, women of color are, they seem to be affected at higher rates, diagnosed later. And there's a whole slew of, of the whys, but why do you have any are you reaching out to more women of color or just kind of letting it come naturally based on the population? No, we are being very intentional, intentional about trying to make sure that our wisdom population represents the diversity of this country. Um, the National Cancer Institute funding that I mentioned um, is, you know, the aims are really to bring in more racial and ethnic diversity within our population that allowed us to expand to new recruitment centers across the country that were chosen because of their more diverse patient populations, Um, University of Chicago, Louisiana State University, University of Alabama, and at site in Miami, really trying to be intentional about making sure that we can represent all all women across the country. Um, That combined with our community leadership board that I mentioned, really developing strategies for reaching um, communities that normally don't get asked to participate in research or who are, you know, excluded from research, making sure that we get um, awareness back to our communities with trusted messengers, trusted voices within the community. Um, so it's, it has been a very intentional and, and uh, uh, intentional effort and high priority for us uh, to make sure that we are uh, reaching out to everyone to participate. It's super important because for so long, I think as, you know, myself, middle-class white woman who has, who has had a very fortunate life, not everyone has that. And especially people of color in, in our country. And for, for so long, we've been taught, okay, you don't, you don't see color. Everyone's the same, but I think as times of changing, we realize, no, we actually need to recognize, recognize different different colors and the the problems that people have based on their skin color. I mean, that's a huge, obviously national problem, but especially in breast cancer, because more women of color are dying because they don't get the help that they need. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, many of our risk models and the information that we know about breast cancer risk is based off of um, women with European ancestry. And so we're really hopeful that we'll be able to gather information from the women who participate, the diverse group of women who participate in this study to help to inform those risk models and and to provide further background and stratification um, from someone's um, ancestry and and 
really see what the intersections are between genetics and race and, and ancestry as well. It's, it's, it's all super important. And I, I, I applaud greatly the work that you're doing. I imagine that's what motivates you to get up every day and continue doing this because the, the answers aren't going to come tomorrow. It's definitely a long-term project. How long do you foresee the project continuing until you can make an overall assessment and do your reporting or however you term the end of end of a study? Yeah, so I think our primary reporting should come in a few years. We'll be recruiting at least through this year, and then um, we want to follow women for at least two years or one screening cycle um, to see if there are any other breast cancer outcomes. So I would assume that in the next few years, we'll have some some results um, of our primary endpoint, though we are looking to share back results on you know rates of mutation carriers within the study and patient preference and breast cancer worry and anxiety and things like that. Those are measures we can report out sooner. And so I anticipate those will be out in the next year or so. Um, You know, our goal is to not hold on to the information. We are all about sharing data and sharing results and making sure that that gets out, not just to the scientific community, but to the general population as well. Um, You know, this information is is important for everyone to, to understand and to have access to. And once the study results are published and out there, in my mind, I imagine there has to be some kind of a battle with the insurance companies because they, they're really the ones who determine how often and when we can have our mammograms and the baseline is at 40. Like I, you know, thankfully I had a great gynecologist at the time and I started, I think at 36 or 37 getting mine because of my family history and I somewhat demanded it. And so she, you know, she put it through, but how, how do you go fight that battle once you have the knowledge? Yeah, you know, we um, formed a stakeholder community right when we started the study. And the whole goal was to bring those decision makers, policymakers, insurance companies, and others to the table at the start of the study so they could be part of the process. So that at the end, they were already bought in, they were already aware of what we were doing and what we were testing, and it wasn't a stepwise process once the study results were out. So we've actually, we've partnered with some insurance companies to actually cover the cost of the genetic testing and the risk assessment. Um, But really, again, the whole goal is to make sure that we are all openly communicating about, you know, the study, the approach, um, the thresholds we're using for determining who is at risk. Um, the fact that we're using some risk factors like a polygenic risk that is not part of their medical policy right now, but they know now by being part of being at the table that it will be part of the discussion once the results are out. They're primed for these discussions to happen. So I think that is another sort of really innovative and important piece of how we started this study and how we're currently conducting it, where We are trying to partner with all of these um, important groups um, early and often so that we can make change faster at the end of the study. That totally makes sense. Now, you obviously are very, you know, you, you, you know, all things wisdom. Is there things that I haven't asked about that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, You know, I would say it's, it's a study that we are hoping everyone will feel compelled to join. It's, it's easy. It's, we've tried to make it as convenient as possible. Sign up anytime on your phone, on your computer. Um, 
we are here for any questions that you may have um, and and open to you know setting up discussions with people if you if you have specific questions. Um, we would love for um, for women to really understand what their risk is, and in particular, those women who are at high risk who maybe not they may not know that they're at high risk. And we have tools to help provide education and breast health um, decision tools and counseling that we can provide as part of the as part of the process in the study. Um, we can suggest risk-reducing um, strategies, be that medication or lifestyle changes. So, um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into the study. It's not just, you know, surveys and recommendations. There's a, you know, a lot of education and, and hopefully um, empowering women to understand their risk and to be able to take some action. And again, I know we'll, we'll mention it again, and I, I will post about this later, but what is the, the website where they can go sign up? Yeah, it's www.thewisdomstudy.org. Um, and it's a, a website that hopefully you'll be able to, to learn and, and read a little bit more about the study. Um, again, we have regular webinars and open houses and community forums that we would love for people to join and also love for people to help spread the word about this study. Um, we do have a presence on social media, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. That's another really great way just to stay connected to the study. Even if you can't join, see some of the information we're posting, share it with your networks, with your communities, and, and really help us be the um, help us to, to make sure that everyone is, is given the opportunity to participate. I love that. Definitely going to keep getting the word out, even though I can't be, a, I, I'm a joiner and I can't be a part of it. So I'm mad, but um, do, is wisdom an acronym for anything? It is. Um, we love our acronyms in research. So it is stands for women informed to screen depending on measures of risk. So wisdom, uh, women informed to screen depending, depending on, measures on measures of risk. Got yeah. it. Yeah. You kind of had to throw off the OR, but that's okay. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sure that meeting took a long, that, that meeting took a long time too. Like, okay, let's oh, yeah. figure this out. What are we going to name this? That it's catchy and it's easy and it's not something that's going to be confused for anything else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It did take a while, but I think, I think it's good and we've stuck with it. So <laughs> perfect. What, um, literally I have about 30 seconds left. My last question, what is the best part of your job? best part of my job is just the incredible people that I get to interact with. Again, scientists, clinicians, um, patient advocates, community members. I mean, everyone is here because they want to be here. There is a passion and a reason and a drive that I think is unique to many other professions. Um, you know, people aren't here because they're going to become famous or, or make tons of money. They're here because they want to make a difference in women's health and healthcare in general. And um, there's a lot of work that we need to do, but everyone is here and stepping up and, and passionate about making a change. Perfect. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you for all the wonderful information. Listeners, please go 
and recommendthewisdomstudy.org to your friends, your loved ones, even people you don't like, because no one should be getting breast cancer. Get the word out there. Um, if you are a loved one, need our services, please go to breastfriends.org and see what we can do for you. You can make a donation there on our website or by texting BF radio to 41444. You can find old episodes on voice America or wherever you get your podcast. And now you can watch all new episodes in 2022 on the breast friends, YouTube channel. Please take a minute to subscribe. It's really appreciated. And if you'd like to nominate yourself to be a guest or submit your story, please email me at Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. We'll be back next week. And until then, remember we rise by lifting each other. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Please join Michelle Beck again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We rise by lifting each other.